Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hey, it's Max. We are uh, off this week and next week, so we're putting a couple of episodes from earlier this year back through the feed. And this first one is a conversation that I had with Chloe Cooper-Jones. We talked back in April. It was uh, just a few days before her memoir, Easy Beauty, came out. The book you may have seen the last couple of weeks was basically on every best of the year list. If you haven't read it, you should go do that. It's about Chloe's life in lots of different ways, including what it's like to move through the world in a disabled body and how her thinking has changed over the last several years. This conversation, it's, um, it's one of those ones that just stuck with me. I couldn't really shake it. And you'll hear a couple of times in here where I'm just so struck by what Chloe has said that uh, I need a second, like just to process it. Like I, I don't always, um, I don't always know what to say myself. So anyway, here's my conversation with Chloe Cooper Jones from April about her book, Easy Beauty. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Max. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite um, subgenres of the long form podcast, which is talking to someone right before their book launches. And I'm wondering, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling a lot of things. I'm feeling, you know, of course, like very grateful and excited. So a few nice things have happened. Like there have been a few early positive things. And I just had a piece that published yesterday in the New York Times magazine, and it was an excerpt from the book. And that was very well received. And everyone's very nice at this stage. But because the book isn't actually out, I'm kind of in the stage where I feel like if you're like dating somebody and they take you on a date and they're like, you're great. I really like the time that we spend together. I really like that you make me laugh and I think we get along well. And you're in that stage where you know a but is maybe coming. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Are you about to then like stomp on my heart or like what's, about, you know, it's like, but I can't, you can't rush that. Like I just won't hear the end of that date's sentence until Tuesday, April 5th. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I can just tell you uh, as an independent observer, it seems like the date is going fantastically well, like as well as one of these dates can go almost. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. I have to say it's all extremely abstract at this point because the lived experience of putting out probably any large project is just emailing 
a lot. Like, not to sound like a, a grouch about about this like wonderful experience, but it's just it just is very abstract at the moment. I think. No, that doesn't sound grouchy. It just sounds it just sounds honest. But it does make me wonder whether the book itself feels really close right now or kind of far away. I think you go through all kinds of cycles with really big projects. And for me, you know, there's always a point in which when I'm writing the book that I feel sort of feverish excitement about it. And I'm so deep in the sentences that I'm writing and the ideas that I'm exploring or the work that I'm reading. And then inevitably, you know, that wears off and you look at it and you go, oh, I I hate this. I hate this. I hate looking at every thing about it. But I think that's actually a really healthy stage to absolutely despise this thing you love so much. You know, I think like a little bit of self-doubt and a little bit of being totally sick of yourself is quite good for revision and for editing. And so I, I went through all those cycles. But the thing is, is I wrote it in the pandemic and I was you know, quite isolated. I, w- I was with my family, but I was isolated like everyone else. But I also have a capacity to be very mentally isolated too. And the book talks about this, where I can really dissociate pretty intensely and kind of go and lock myself up in a mental space. And one of the, which I call the neutral room in the book. And one of the benefits of that is when I'm writing, I'll be like, no one's ever going to see this ever. And that can be really great because I can write really honest things that otherwise might be uncomfortable for me if I was always thinking about the reception. And so when that diluted self-protective space is pierced, as it is right now, I'm not particularly prepared for it. And I think I'm also like kind of comically walking around like surprised by it all the time. Like I get emails or someone like tweets at me and I'm going, oh my God, like how did my diary like slip out into the universe? And it's like, oh, you published it, you idiot. <laughs> you signed a contract. <laughs> That's how it got out there. You know, I don't know. It's it's just, it's a strange, it's a strange experience. Maybe I'll get better at it, but not yet. Much of the process you just described is also how I feel when I am doing a project, except I don't extend myself the same grace to be like this delusion and self-loathing is actually helpful in the long run. But there's a way in which that connects to the to the neutral room because I was really taken by the way that you wrote about it. And it's this space that you occupy in difficult moments. And in the book, it feels really positive. Like it's a conscious and helpful act. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm stretching, but it feels that feels connected to me, even in what you were just saying, which is like that the stage where you hate the thing, you can see value in that. And deluding yourself into thinking that no one's going to read it, you can see value in that too. So with The Neutral Room, it's an incredibly positive thing for me. But in the book, I think it's also a source of safety and avoidance. So I the the way the neutral room sort of got formed was I grew up with uh, a serious pain disorder as part of my physical, you know, in, in, in relation to my physical disability. And my doctor, my pediatrician, taught me this pain management technique, which I found out later is something that like long distance athletes use a very similar technique, which is you find a place inside your mind 
And my doctor described it. He said, just make it a room that nobody can come into. Make it a very specific visual space. So mine is a white cube with gray numbers that flash. I count to eight in my head. And the idea is that you go into that mental space and you're just a mind, you're not a body, and whatever pain you're in, you're only in it for eight seconds. So if I were walking, say, a very long distance, and I live in New York City, so I'm often walking a long distance, I'm not walking six blocks or something, I'm walking for eight seconds. That's it. And sometimes I'll pick a point, I'll be like, that bench is about eight seconds away. And then once I get to that bench, the eight seconds starts over, and I just focus on those eight seconds. And it can feel like a way of controlling the imagination of pain to come, which the mind, so fascinating in all the ways that it can hurt us, can make imagined pain real pain. Now, of course, once I got older, I could start using the neutral room as a way of avoiding other kinds of pain, emotional pain, social pain, or just situations that may be uncomfortable that I didn't really want to face or deal with. And the thing about the neutral room that I think you're articulating the positive sides of it is that it is a place of tremendous agency for me, like to withdraw from the world and to withdraw from pain or to cut your mind off from spiraling out and imagining all the pain that may or may not come. It's really nice to kind of be able to stop that process. And a lot of things in my life became easier when I could retreat to this neutral room. Big, big projects like like this book or or other, you know, academic projects that I was engaged in, they didn't seem like such a big deal because I would only break them down to their immediate eight count, so to speak. And I would be like, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not spending six years in grad school. I'm I'm writing this term paper. I'm reading this passage and that's all I'm doing. And those things became very manageable. And then I think I could build them up to do other bigger things. But I think the book really looks at that threshold where that desire to be sort of in this neutral space or be in my head became also a tool of great avoidance and also made the act of being present with myself, with my family or my son or my community, like very hard. And I do, I actually think everybody has their own version of this neutral room. Like some people are wild and their neutral room is like jogging. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I don't know how you do that. They're like, oh, I just, if I'm feeling terror, I just go for a run and I go inside myself and I'm like, God bless you. I I can't do it. But do you have a neutral? Yours is probably push-ups or something, right? Like what, something really healthy and good for you? I don't know. I'm making this assumption based on nothing, but... <laughs> I think I think it might actually be jogging. Yeah, I, I knew it. I <laughs> knew it. I don't even know you. I just looked in your eyes on this Zoom or whatever we're on, and I had your number. You just look like one of those jogging assholes. You just look like one of those healthy, well-adjusted, jogging assholes. <laughs> and I'm happy for you. Honestly, I am happy for you. But do you think you ever go on a jog as a way of like avoiding something you probably shouldn't avoid? Like, can it ever cross a threshold in which it's like a coping mechanism rather than a source of agency or reprieve or peace? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, 
I don't know that jogging does that, but there are versions of that for sure. And I don't know that I would have been able to articulate that idea four minutes ago. And I, I wonder for you, like how conscious that dynamic was before you were writing the book, like that idea, that threshold line, is that something you've been thinking about for a long time? No, because I was not self-aware enough to realize when I was on the wrong side of that threshold. There's a incident that starts the book where I'm at a bar and I'm sitting with these two friends of mine. They're both in the philosophy program with me. One is an ethical philosopher. These two men are having this philosophical discussion about whether just disability in general makes a life not just less worth living, but, but maybe disabled people shouldn't be allowed to be born at all. And one is arguing for it and one, to be clear, is arguing against it. But I was sitting in the middle of this. These men both knew I was disabled and they were sort of speaking through me and not not truly including me in this conversation or even thinking about how that might affect me to, to hear these things so explicitly stated. And it wasn't the first time that I've heard people make this argument. But it was like the first time where I was just like, oh, man, I just want to have a drink. Like, can we just have a drink? Like, do I have to, like, defend my entire existence right now? Like, do I have to find it in myself to rehearse, like, all these reasons why a disabled person is a real person? Like, I remember it was a really nice day and I was wearing a dress I loved. And I was like, I just want to have a drink with these people. But I I found myself in the middle of this conversation, like, really sinking down into the neutral room and having this thought of, like, I'll just stop paying attention to what's happening and completely absent myself from this discussion altogether. I'll just count to eight until inevitably these men start talking about something else. And then I can kind of come up, you know, to the surface and rejoin them. And when I did that, I kind of had, I kind of caught myself for the first time and thought, oh, wait a minute. Like if, if I'm absenting myself from this discussion. And partially I did it because I didn't feel I had the language, the correct language to discuss seriously what these men were saying. Then I'm somewhat complicit in this bad set of beliefs. And I better not do that because I don't want to be complicit in people thinking that that my life is less worth living or that disability in general is an automatic thing that decreases the entirety of your whole life. So that that really shook me where I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this thing where I'm dissociating and, and it has far larger ramifications than, than I would like. But then the second thing is that my son was four years old and he was about to be five. He was almost five. It's that age where, at least for my son, he was really like mirroring all my behavior back to me. And I started to notice that he was like scowling at strangers or being like really sort of defensive or kind of assuming the worst about people. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, like he's getting that from me because I just I always assume that people are um, are going to be cruel or they're going to be they're going to judge me or they're going to be prejudiced. And I assume that before I even let them be whole people. So in this way, I'm, I was reflecting back the exact kind of reductive and dehumanizing behaviors that I felt so controlled by. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can live my life like that, just being a total 
asshole, but like, that's not worthy of my son. So these two things kind of happened at the same time. And they forced me to kind of think about these behaviors and this threshold for the first time ever. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. I think these are complicated and nuanced ideas and you are writing about them with clarity and certainty. I'm really interested. I mean, it seems so clear to you now. How much were you working out through the writing? How much of it were you figuring out through the book? It's like these moments happen. And does that then lead you to say like, I got to write about this? Does that lead you to say like, I got to do a bunch of therapy? Does it lead you to say like, I got to go to Europe for a while. Like how, how does that work with the creative process? Well, I didn't have any, I should have gone to therapy. I didn't. I just was like, I'll just watch Roger Federer play tennis a lot. And that will be therapy to me, which it was, but I did not have any intention of this becoming a book. I saw the need for me to change something about myself and my behavior. And it was quite stark once I finally could recognize this need to change. And it felt very urgent because I had a child who was soaking up my every mood and my every action. And there was no hiding myself from him, uh, which I think I thought as a parent you could do, but turns out, no, you can't. Every, every parent learns that eventually. Um, and so I just, I was, I was working as a journalist and I was also doing some dissertation research. And so I was traveling a lot for that. And I started this project just writing for myself. And I made this commitment to myself that as I was traveling, I would not pretend I wasn't in a disabled body. I would just completely focus my attention and my, my thoughts on it and my observations on it. And I would not pretend that I wasn't in pain and I wouldn't pretend that people were staring at me or asking me weird questions. I would just pay attention to it. That's it. I would just simply pay attention to it and I would write about it. So I wrote in these journals and and I also thought a lot about the theorists that I had read over the course of my life and the philosophers that I had read and the poets that I'd read. And I, you know, I think my I was just sending my mind out and trying to see 
what it could reach for to try to help me process this problem that I knew I needed to, to fix in some way in myself. And then a friend of mine was like, do you have any writing you want to give me for the believer? And I was like, no. And he was like, maybe just give me something. And I kind of sent him this jumble of notes, which then they published um, as this essay called Such Perfection. And when that essay came out, again, I, I just thought, well, no one will ever read this. And that wasn't true. A lot of people saw it. And I started to get these incredible emails or, you know, DMs on Twitter from people who were really, they felt very seen. And it wasn't just people in the disability community. One of the most incredible letters that I got was from a young man who was about my age and had a daughter the same age as Wolfgang. And his wife had died in her early 30s. So he was a widower. And he said, he would go to parties and people would talk to him in a sort of, you know, normal way. And then they would learn he was a widower. And he said that one fact suddenly shaded every interaction I could ever have. And it became the thing that people wanted to reduce me down to. And being a widower was really an important part of his identity, but it was also a very complex part. And people didn't want to see the complexity of it. They only wanted to reduce it down to their idea of perceived tragedy and the pity that they vomited up on this guy. And so when he read that piece, he was like, I know this is a really different thing, but I feel that's what you're talking about. And that was so meaningful to me because that is what I want. I want everyone to feel like this book is for them and that I'm talking to them I'm speaking from my very specific experience about a thing I think is really relatable. So once I got some of these letters, I just thought, okay, well, I don't know. Maybe there's something of value here. And I don't know. I just, I just chipped away at it. And then it was a book suddenly. I, you know, it's like, I, no one will ever see this. I'll just keep writing it. It's not a great answer, but it's true. <laughs> there's something in, in what you just said that I want to go back to, which is you said, the thing I'm talking about in this book can apply to everybody. How would you articulate what the thing is? Yeah, what's that thing? What's this book about? Um, I have this problem that I want to fix. I have this thing about myself that I want to change. And the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch has this idea that she calls unselfing, in which she says that, you know, all the ways in which we can see the world, of course, all the things that we perceive are informed by concepts. So if we have bad concepts, if we have bad ideas about things, that's going to shape the way that we are able to see. And the way that we're able to see will inevitably shape the way that we act or make choices. So she says, if you want to shift your choices, if you want to shift your behavior, you actually have to go back and shift your concepts. And so one of the ways she thinks you can do that is through the contemplation of beauty, and the experience of beauty, because that necessarily pulls you outside of yourself and into awe or, or bewilderment or excitement about the external world. So she has this really great example where she says, you know, I'm sitting at a window and I'm kind of obsessing over myself and my reputation or some problem that I'm thinking through. And then suddenly I see a kestrel, you know, like the bird. And the bird is beautiful, and and she says, for a moment, all there is is the kestrel. And that 
moment of acknowledging that beauty in the external world gives her some reprieve from her own sort of cloudy, dark, anxious thoughts. So once she has that reprieve, she can re-enter her thoughts from a different perspective. So she she really thinks that the experience of beauty is is not about just mere pleasure, but she actually thinks it's a really powerful tool for shifting our concepts and the way we see the world. So the explicit sort of project of this book is, can I change myself and can I change my concepts about other people by going out and seeking experiences of beauty? So each chapter I'm, you know, I'm looking at a sculpture, I go to an opera, I go to a Beyonce concert, I see Roger Federer's backswing, you know, I sit in contemplation of nature in very beautiful places in order to try to see if I can shift these bad concepts that I have about myself or or other people in the world or my family or what it means to be in a family or what it means to be a mother. That's the explicit project. You know, the thing that's unsaid in the book is that a lot of the bad ideas about disability come from able-bodied people or people who don't have that much experience with the disability community. Like, our lives are inherently lesser. That's a really bad concept. So Iris Murdoch would say, well, I'm not actually going to change your mind by going, hey, you're wrong about this and my life is great. I'm going to maybe only change your mind by asking you to spend, you know, 288 pages being with me, you know, being close to me, seeing how full and not all good, but but very real and full and complicated and flawed and human my life is. So that perhaps by the end of that, maybe I'll have shifted some people's concepts of what the disabled life is and what its value is, maybe just an inch. And if I can do that, then I can shift how you see me. And if I can shift how you see me, then I can shift how you'll behave or act toward me or or act toward yourself when you inevitably grow old and become disabled because it's, you know, that's what happens if you're lucky and you live a long life as disability becomes a part of your reality. So that's the that's the implicit goal of the book and and it is both of those goals are indebted to this idea that beauty has a really powerful and important role to play in in changing those concepts, hopefully for the better. I don't want to shit on like a bunch of other people who have come on the podcast, but that's that's one of the great distillations of a book I've ever heard. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> that, that, I, I, that's, I'm a little speechless, Chloe, is the, is the actual answer. Oh, thanks. Uh, that, that was stunning and so ambitious for a project. But for you personally, how do you feel different having completed this project? And, and part of the reason I ask is because there was probably a way to write this book in which the world was being shitty to you and you were just trying to move through it. And that's not how you wrote it exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, so we don't have to beat around the bush. Like, I'm the worst person in the book. But No, it's... no, no. I, <laughs> I'm not comfortable at all giving you the award of worst person in the work. <laughs> like, I think generally men <laughs> take that title. 
just as a collective unit. But sorry, go go on, flagellate yourself a little bit if you want to. Yeah, yeah, okay. So if there is a narrative about disability, which is hard to find anyway, it's not a common theme in movies or especially when I was growing up and the books I read, I don't see a lot of disabled women on the cover of Vogue or profiles about disabled movie stars except Peter Dinklage. And this is a a world in which, you know, the the idea that there's like a lot of cultural saturation of nuance or value attached to disability, like we're just not there yet. What you do see is when disabled people sort of pop up in in film or television or books or or other sorts of cultural narratives, they're either a malevolent bad omen or they're sort of a magical childlike sexless being that usually dies at the end and like helps everybody else see sort of the wonder and magic of their own lives. I think all of those things are really dehumanizing for obvious reasons, but I think something that can be really interesting is that a person's own internalized ableism can cause them to sort of lean into that. And so sometimes you read these stories even either about or by disabled people where they've kind of reduced their own lives down to inspiration or they're at, or maybe just marketers are putting pressure on them to to reduce themselves down to inspirational sort of stories for other people and i think that doesn't do anyone any favors i think it actually serves to further other the disabled body from the full and real human experience. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to write this book, like I alone don't matter at all. Like it doesn't, nothing about my life actually matters. Like nobody cares about, you know, Chloe in Brooklyn. But if I can try to write a book in which a disabled person is living a very full and messy life in the sense that it's just the, the full experience of being human, meaning I write about my own moments of great agency, but my own moments of a failure to find agency. I write about moments where I stick up for myself and I write about moments where I utterly fail to, to do so or to do the right thing. I write about having great sexual desire, which is not always aimed at my husband. <laughs> I write about being a good and bad mother and a good and bad wife and a good and bad daughter and a good and bad thinker. And all of those things are just very true to me. And I try my hardest not to protect myself or try to make myself look better than I am so that you don't feel any separation from me. I don't want you to feel separated from me. I want you to feel like you really are, you really know me and that you see some value in, in my existence. I also had this moment where I thought, let me just call this a novel, you know, like auto fiction is a thing and everybody's writing auto fiction, you know, like all these people are writing memoirs and calling them novels and that's fine. But for me, I was like, no, nah, I just have to call it a memoir. I, I have to say this is, this is all me and it's all real and there's going to be no barrier between myself and the reader, like the vulnerability of these experiences. I think it's, 
it's important to this particular project. Was it hard to get to that place? Yeah, it was really hard. And I had an amazing editor, Lauren Ween, um, at Avid Reader, that she would read drafts of, she knew what my project was, and she would read drafts of the book. And there would be, sec. there was this one section in particular where she would go, I don't know what it is, but you're not telling the truth yet. And I would look at it and I go, yeah, I am. And she'd go, no, you're like talking around a certain truth you don't want to admit here. And I would go back and I would look at it and I rewrote it and I give it to her and she'd go, you're a little closer, but like, you're just not telling us the truth. And I'd be like, what's the truth, Lauren? Tell me how to write it. She'd be like, no, I can't tell you. You got to figure it out. And I just rewrote certain sections, but especially this one, like I just wrote it and I would just sit and look at the page and I would think about the thing I didn't want to say, the thing I didn't want to admit to. And I was very lucky that I had an editor who just did not let me off the hook until I found, and there were sometimes it took, you know, six or seven tries until I really could find, I don't know, like the bravery, I guess, to tell the truth about certain things. So I had help. I had help in that way. This is going to sound like a preposterous question, but like, is that all it takes to find the truth? You sit there <laughs> and, write it, and write it six or seven times? Well, I had to write it six or seven times. I also had to like go to Italy, you know. I also had to try to blow up my life a couple times and then, you know, you cry and you, you, you do all these self-destructive things. And, and in between that, you write a couple drafts and they get better. But no, I mean, I think, I think people are capable of searching themselves and not always, I don't know how to say it right. I don't know, Max. That's such a good question. I guess it's like, um, I just was really committed to trying to find the truth, but the brain is so powerful at protecting us. It is such an incredible machine of self-regard and self-protection. And so I think Part of this drafting was like just sitting with my brain and really trying to look at the ways that it was trying to block certain memories or or get me to look away at certain things. And then it was like paying attention to those avoidant behaviors. And as soon as I sensed that resistance in myself or that avoidant behavior, it was like, oh, time to drill down on that. Trying to like, trying to like stick your thumb as deep as possible in that very sensitive wound. But I think it also just takes help too. I mean, people go to therapy and I just called my editor. Are you surprised at all that writing about being disabled was something you took on or or not? I guess maybe what I'm asking is like, was this the plan? No, no, very much not. I mean, I literally didn't talk to anyone in my life about disability until I was like 30, ever. Not my husband, not my friends, you know, as little as possible to my own mother. I had this very bad idea that what I needed to do in every single social situation was wait until people could unsee my body. People would hang out with me, like, you know, they'd meet me and they kind of, you know, I'd meet someone at a bar or something and I'd see that sort of like startle response at my body or they'd kind of like be glancing up and down. They'd be kind of uncomfortable. They'd want to ask me questions. 
And I would just sort of start a timer in my brain and I'd go, okay, all right, I'm just going to talk to them about all this other stuff and I'm going to try to make them laugh and I'm going to do all this like complicated deflection and eventually I'll kind of dazzle them enough that they'll just kind of forget that I have a body. And this amazing thing happens as people start saying things to you like, you know, I don't even see your disability anymore. I don't even think about it. And I'd be like, great, that's the whole thing I'm trying to get you to do so that now you can see and engage with the real me, right? And, you know, if you really are committed to that project, as I was, you can't write about it. You can't study it. You certainly can't do philosophy about identity. I didn't know anything about disability history or about all the legal rights that I enjoy because of activists that have fought for them for me before. So I just turned my back on all of that. I didn't study it. I didn't learn anything. And it was all in service of trying to be truly recognized or like truly seen. And of course, what was was happening is I was involved in a complete act of self-erasure because my body and my real self are related. They are in a very specific relationship and a complicated and a changing relationship to each other. And so there is no real me without my physical self. And here's what I had to figure out in my 30s is like once you start this project of self-acceptance and you start being very, you know, a little bit more authentic and yourself, then the people that you're with feel a permission to be a little more authentically themselves and a little bit more comfortable and honest with you. And then suddenly you're actually connecting (laughs) with people. So one of the biggest things that's sort of shifted in my life in writing this book is people feel closer to me. And so the thing I wanted, I I was the thing in my own way, which is often, I don't know, the case. But so no, that is a re- really long way of saying, no, I did not think I was going to ever write about this. But once I started, it felt like I met myself for the first time. And I also immediately became a better parent, like immediately. How, how did that manifest? Well, I think my son just felt like he wasn't living in a home anymore with a mother who was living on two planes of existence all the time. I was just a more integrated person. And that made me not like I've got everything figured out. Like I'm still a total mess and I am not self actually. I still have never gone to therapy. I got to start real soon. I should have started like six months before this book came out. (laughs) But I am somebody who's like actively and consciously trying to be more self aware, more thoughtful, and to think about those things rather than shy away from them. And when you model that for your children, they typically feel empowered to do the same for themselves. And I see my son at 10, you know, starting to face some really serious social things for the first time. And he's just coming home and talking to me about it. And I think it's because I was really able to talk to him about things. And we were just communicating in a way that I never could have communicated you know, even five, six years ago. So I hope that makes me a better parent. I think it does. We'll see what he's like as a teenager. I might regret all these choices, but (laughs) it's going all right so far. 
Do you think it's made you a better writer? I hope so, because my empathy has expanded. And I think that is a really powerful tool for a writer. I think I have a really long way to go um, in the ways that, that I want that empathy to extend to other people. Like, you know, I was a professor for many years and I found that the best days in the classroom, which I tried to make all the days like this, is when I really integrated my own failures with, you know, Kant or something, whatever I was teaching. And I would really try to talk to the students like about how hard this work is or what felt really truly urgent about this work. And so whenever I met them at that level where they were, like when they were encountering this work for the first time, like those were the best days in the classroom. And I want to recreate that feeling in on the page. Like I just don't want anybody who reads my work to be like, oh, she's speaking at me or from the distance of an activist who's got it all figured out or, you know, something like that. So I hope so. Do you have a sense of where that extended empathy will take your writing? So I'm working on this piece right now. This is a reported piece. It's very different from my book. It, I'm not a character in it at all. It's just a straight up reported piece about this man named Michael Hickson who died in June of 2020. He was admitted to the hospital, a hospital in Texas for suspected COVID. And his wife recorded the doctor having a conversation about not putting him on any sort of medication, not doing any COVID treatment, and in fact, just removing nutrition and liquids and and letting him pass. And he says, you know, he doesn't have a high enough quality of life in his normal life to save. And she says, oh, because he's a paraplegic and he's blind. And he says, that's right. And so when I hear that recording, it's obviously a really it's a really horrifying recording. It's a really painful thing to hear. I found it because it kind of had made its rounds around the disability community and people were rightfully outraged. And we were at the beginning of the pandemic when a lot of disabled people felt that these social beliefs about their value being inherently lesser might very seriously, and they had great reason to believe this, like might seriously affect the kind of COVID care they could get. And then now here's this recording of a doctor explicitly saying, yep, not going to not gonna help him. He's not worth saving. And when I hear that recording, I have an, a tremendous emotional reaction to it. I have an anger reaction to it. I feel a lot of personal conflicted feelings of, just sorrow and and frustration. But in order to report this piece out well, I need to really look at this work and think, what is this doctor saying? You know, how, how can I break down all the things he's trying to communicate and imagine that there's a chance that he isn't this monster and that he's operating on perhaps some really bad beliefs or bad concepts, but maybe some things I don't know. So I broke down this whole recording, and in this recording, you hear him talk about quality of life, which has actually a very technical set of meanings that are quite debated in the medical field. So I spent the last like two years, one, talking to the 
the widow of Michael Hickson, but also talking to bioethicists that that look at this quality of life question, that also look at this futility question. He uses this word futile. I talked to a lot of scholars. This couple, Michael and Melissa Hickson, are black, and I looked at statistics of how race could have affected this outcome. I spoke to other family members who saw this as the right decision. And every single time I talked to somebody, I really needed to give them my critical empathy, right? Where it's not like I'm just believing everything they say or not pushing back or asking serious questions, but I needed to believe that they had a point of view and that I needed to understand that point of view as honestly and seriously as possible, even if that point of view really is hurtful for me as a, as a disabled woman to think about. And I think in order to do that work, you have to really just believe that people in their core are worthy of being given a chance to be heard or understood even when they're saying or doing things that are really hard to process. And that doesn't mean I have to write sympathetically about them or uncritically about them, but I have to like leave my mind very open to the things that they're saying, especially people in the medical field working through COVID. So I don't know if I could have written this piece, you know, before I wrote the book. That piece, I should say, sounds like an ambitious and incredible project and I'm looking forward to to reading it but it feels like there's a there's a direct line between that work and where the book ends which is in another bar and another bookend moment and another person saying a version of we won't give this person care because their quality of life is not high enough and your reaction to it at the end of the book, as you're saying, it's not like you've suddenly actualized and are sitting in a constant meditative state, but you're in a different place. That piece you're describing feels completely connected to where the book lands to me. Yeah, thank you. I I mean, I think so too. I think one of the most common experiences, I don't think this is particular to disability. This might just be a human experience. I probably experience this more in relation to my disability, but I don't think it's limited, is that you encounter new people all the time. They isolate one probably visual fact about you. They have a set of thoughts that are connected to that one visual fact about you. And then they don't have second or third thoughts about you. (laughs) You know, like that's it. They have that one thought. They make that one impression I did it to you earlier in this interview. I was like, you're that jogging asshole. I happen to be right. So that's, you know, I was just right. But I had that one thought and like people have it and they don't give you the grace of any more thoughts. And at the end of the book, you know, I'm feeling changed, but the world is still the world. I made another person in a bar who says another insensitive thing to me, but I'm able because I've shifted within myself to not, first of all, not internalize his cruelty. It doesn't become mine to hold. Like, I don't condone it. I don't let him off the hook, but I don't hold it. It stays with him. But I also don't reduce him down to this one bad thing that he said. I want to give him 
the grace of like a second or a third or a fourth thought. And I think when we get in the practice of that, we certainly are going to be better reporters, you know, we're going to be better journalists. So as I'm reporting out this piece, every single person I talk to, I go into every interview with the baseline belief that one, I'm going to give them some respect for their area of expertise. I'm not going to imagine that I always know better than they do. I'm going to listen and try to understand their area of expertise or their realm of expertise, whether that be professional or familial or emotional, whatever it is. And I'm going to try to have second and third and fourth thoughts about what they're saying to me, even though my knee-jerk reaction is in some of these cases to feel just really hurt and angry. But that hurt and anger, while it can be instructive, it can't be guiding the communications that I'm having because my job in that particular case is to write somebody else's story, not my story, and to report it out as accurately and thoroughly and to give it the full force of my cognitive capacities. I think Michael Hickson's life deserves that. So yeah, I, I don't I don't think I could have done that before I wrote the book and kind of traveled through a version of myself that couldn't do that and really looked at that person. Well, I can tell you this, Chloe, the book left me with second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and many, many more thoughts. <laughs> I am uh, very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. And I'm very excited for how your date is going to end. <laughs> I'll let you know. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really love this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lemmer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Our intern was Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends at Fox with whom we produce this show. And thanks so much to Chloe Cooper-Jones. Her book is Easy Beauty. It's out right now. You should read it. We'll see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.